For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today. I was. Uh, I love your books behind you. I've been laughing at the moment when when you're seeing the politicians working from home and you're wondering if they're they're rescheduling their bookshelves so there's things in there that, that don't offend people. I'm sure they curate their bookshelves very carefully. Uh, as you can probably see, my bookshelf is completely uncurated. <laughs> the bit behind me is actually part of uh, part of my archive. So the bit behind me is all books that I've got. Uh, a short story in, or I've written a foreword for, or I've made some kind of contribution to. So that's the basis, and and then there's a whole stack of uh, unread books behind me as well, waiting to be waiting to be dealt with. It's just general the general chaos that is my office. People sometimes say, "Oh, can we film in your office?" I'm going like, "No, <laughs> <laughs> you're not <laughs> getting in there." You, you will discover just how disorganised I am. Val, I'd imagine for for everyone that is watching or listening to this podcast, they, they will know exactly who you are, but. You don't need any introduction, but as you can see, you're surrounded by books. You're you're a Scottish writer, and uh, yeah, I mean that that's took over a large part of your life, hasn't it? Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's I've been now been a published author for more than half of my life. Um, past that milestone uh, last year, actually. Um, so yeah, September 1987 rather was when my first novel was published. Uh, so I've been doing roughly one a year ever since. How, how does someone like yourself who has spent, as you said, you know, more than half your year writing books, how do you enjoy reading other books? It must be, I sometimes feel like when I'm in, in my place of work, you once you finish work, you want to escape and the thought of going back to doing that in the evening would be a bit challenging, but I suppose it's just a labour of love, isn't it? Well, it's partly, I think the act of, of writing and the act of reading are two very different things. I mean, they are connected. Uh, you need to be a re- reader, I think, to be a good writer. But it's a different process. In, in the same way that people say, oh, when I read your books, I get terrified. I, I'm frightened to turn the light out or whatever. When I'm writing them, it's not that kind of experience for me because I'm in control. I know what's going to happen next. Um, nobody's going to die before breakfast, you know, once I've left the office for the day. Um, but when I'm reading somebody else's book, if they've done their job properly, I'm really sucked in and it's very immediate. And it's also very interactive because the book then occupies the space inside my head and it's populated with the sort of images of, of, of people that, that I'm creating as I'm reading. So it's a very different experience. Um, and it does have an effect, or it does have an impact on your reading life. And I think uh, probably more so when you're starting out because like anything, you're an apprentice, you're learning your craft, you're figuring out how to get better at what you're doing. So you're checking out what other people are doing. And so you're reading with, I suppose, a very critical eye. And somebody does something well, you're thinking, oh, that's really clever. I need to tuck that away and think, how can I use that in my work? Uh, Or somebody does something really badly and you think, well, I'm never going to do that. (laughs) Avoid that. (laughs) So in a way, it makes you a much more demanding reader in a way. So you're actually looking for those books that, that draw you in where you're so engaged with the book itself that you're not actually thinking about the structure or the technique or how they've done the suspense or whatever, that you're just drawn in and, and completely engaged with it. And that doesn't happen every time I pick up a book, sad to say. It must be really hard as well not to be to be critical in thinking, you know, I wouldn't have done that or, or you know, I could do this slightly better. Or 
Or what was their editor thinking? Where was their editor? Was the, did the editor actually look at this book? Um, you know, it makes you very conscious, I think, of the, the role of a good editor who, whose job is essentially to help me make my book the best it can be. Um, you know, my editor is not prescriptive. She doesn't say to me things like, you have to do this and you need to change that. But we both sit down with, with the draft of the book and think about the things that are not quite working. And usually the things that she thinks are not quite working are things that I already know are not working. Uh, and in the process of discussing that, I generally figure out how to fix it. Uh, and so that's, for, for me, you know, not to listen to your editor is madness. But I do know there are some writers who just, you know, won't be edited. They think they know exactly how to do it. And uh, you can see from the declining quality of the books how <laughs> they're not quite learning the craft and perhaps the way they should um, but I have to say one thing that has changed as I have, have got older, um, and uh, I suppose I mean, I'm 65 now, and I still feel like I'm 32, but the reality is I know that uh, at some point this will cease. Um, and so I have now come to a place where I will not carry on reading a bad book. I used to have that you know, terrible... Well, you just put it down, you'll, you'll just chuck it, yeah. that's it, I'm done. Chuck it, charity shop box. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I used to be that sort of Scottish Presbyterian, you know, I've started this book, I've got to finish it. But now I think life is too short for bad books and bad wine. How, how quickly do you make up your, your judgment? As I'd imagine the wine takes a bit longer, but the books might be quicker. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if it hasn't done something to interest me by page 50, if it's, and it's not really very exciting or very interesting, then I'll probably put it to one side. Um if, 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 it's, if, it's, if I'm not sure, I'll give it a bit longer, you know, 100 pages or so. But if I'm 100 pages in and a book's not got me rushing downstairs in the morning to pick it up and start again, then it's what's the point? There's so many good books out there that I can be dipping into Absolutely. and really enjoying. Um, and then, there's, as I said, there's, there's, as when it comes to dipping into, um, I think one of the things that... Uh, is, been a real pleasure for me in lockdown and, and I don't tend to read a lot of non-fiction generally unless it's specifically to do with uh, a book idea that I'm working on or a project I'm working on but one of the things I've found uh, in, in lockdown is is the joys of non-fiction books that that are sort of split into sections so I can sit down first thing in the morning before I start on whatever novel I'm reading and just read a few pages that is sort of complete in and of itself and takes me into a world I don't know anything about. I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment about colour. Right. Um, and it's it's just um, every morning I read a wee bit before I start on, I say, the novel that I'm reading. And it's just, it's different and it's full of wee stories. And I love wee stories and I love, um, I love trivia, really. I mean, sort of, sort of you know, the, the story behind a particular shade of yellow that Renaissance painters used that then went out of fashion in the mid-19th century. Why did that happen? It's, 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 it's a daft wee thing and, you know, it's probably never going to be of any use to me whatsoever, but I like to be stimulated, I like my curiosity to be stimulated. Tell me this, Val, that, that does not sound like something that you would hear from a, a working class girl that's brought up in Kirkcaldy. How, how did your journey bring you to this? And, and I well, don't mean that in, in a bad way to put down anyone from Kirkcaldy, as many people know, you know, I'm from Motherwell, as, as working class as you get, but I think it's it's important to note that the stereotypes would not put you in that bracket. Well, no, I mean, I, I grew up very much in a working-class family, working-class background in, in Fife. Um, when I was born, my dad worked in the shipyard, my granddads were both miners. Um, but they were that generation of, of working-class in Scotland that actually understood the way 
to get your kids a better life than they'd had, better life chances than they had, was through education. And so my mum used to take me to the library well before I could even read. When I was a toddler, she'd put me in the pram and wheel me across Temple Hall Estate to the library there and sit and read my picture books. And then when I was about six years old, we moved down the town opposite the central library. And that just became my, my home from home. As an only child, I was always like you know looking inside my head for, for entertainment. Uh, and I found that in the library. And I was lucky enough to, to go to uh, Kirkcaldy High School, which at the time uh, was a school that valued academic excellence, but it also valued extracurricular things so you were expected to do sport you were expected to participate in music whether that was in a choir or an orchestra you were expected to to find something that interested you in the in the sort of after school things and get stuck into that and I got involved with the debating society for example uh, and so I guess the combination of those things gave me uh, a curiosity uh, I've always wanted to to find out more to understand more uh, and again, because of the breadth of the Scottish education system, uh, I wasn't just channeled into a, a narrow path early on. So, I mean, my, I, my hires were English, French and Latin, maths, physics and chemistry. Brilliant. So it, it gave me it gave me huge opportunities. Uh, and I think, you know, that I look around now and I, I, I regret that, that the modern schooling system does not seem to provide the same opportunities to our, our kids as, as, as I certainly had. Absolutely. It sounds like when, when you were at school, there was a, as you touched on, you know, your, your hires were broad. And, and I feel, you know, it's been a while since I was at school now, but I've got a younger sister who lives in the Highlands who's gone through her, her hires at the moment. And I feel from such a young age nowadays that they force people into a corner to know exactly what they want to be when they're older or to know exactly what subjects you have to pick them in first or second year at school now. And I feel that it puts a lot of pressure on kids, you know, that don't know what they want to do. And it, it almost boxes them into something without letting them express themselves. I think there's some a lot of truth in that, and I think there's a tendency with you know the focus on national curriculums and exams um, for for teachers to be forced to teach to the exam, to teach to the curriculum, Absolutely. instead of basically uh, going where their own enthusiasms take them. You know, and I can remember uh, teachers that that would go off on sort of all sorts of odd tangents because that was something that really interested them. So you'd end up watching a film in the French class because the French teacher thought it was a really interesting film that you might enjoy, you know, yeah. instead of just strictly, here's, here's some irregular verbs we're going to get through today. Um, and, you know, English teachers, we would share their passions for particular writers with you, whether you wanted to be shared or not. But, <laughs> but there was a sense, I think, a lot of the time of enthusiasm. Um, and, and that was communicated, uh, uh, for me anyway, it's communicated very well. Uh, there were still things that I hated um, and, and I never really got. I mean, physics, there was nobody more astonished than my physics teacher that I got an A in my higher physics because <laughs> I never got, I never understood half of what I was doing. But I copied a lot of Sandra McLaren's notes. <laughs> All credit to Sandra right there. Aye, absolutely. It's it's really interesting that, that you touch on that as well because without harking on too much about your life, Val, you know you were, you went on to to go to St Hilda's College in Oxford, and again, and, and I hate to box people into stereotypes, but from someone from Kirkcaldy or, or even from someone that, that didn't go to a, a private school in England, that is is very unusual. Well, I was actually the first um, first student from a Scottish state school that St Hilda's had accepted. Um, you know, and I went. I was I was very young because I'd skipped a year uh, between primary and high school, and did my Oxford entrance when I was sixteen. 
uh, I went down for my interview and uh, I remember the, she's, the principal uh, said to me, you've never taken anyone from a Scottish state school before, <laughs> uh, as if I was some sort of exotic creature. And I said, well, it's about time you started. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I was very, I, I was brought up in a house, my dad was a great Burns man, and he brought me up with the, the belief that I was as good as anybody else, and that if I could get somewhere on my own merits, then nobody had the right to, to put me down or say I didn't belong. Uh, and I ended up applying for Oxford, I think, because I, I didn't feel I belonged. I felt, I felt like an outsider. Um, I, I at the time, I thought it was mostly because I wanted to be a writer. And that was a, a desire that formed quite early on. I, I think I was about nine or ten, and I used to read these books called the Shally School books. Um, one of the characters in the Shally School books was had grown up to become a writer. And in one of the books, she gets a letter from a publisher, and there's a cheque in the envelope. And I'm like, it's the first time it dawned on me that writers got paid money, that it was, it was a job. It's a proper job. You could, you could do this for a living, make stuff up and get paid for it. And so that was the point where I decided that was what I wanted to be. And I, I spent, I think, most of my teens feeling like, uh, like an outsider, feeling like there was something that, that made me different and I didn't really know what it was. Um, I mean, I know now that a large part of it was my sexuality. I was growing up in Fife in the 1960s, early 70s. There were no gay people. There was no, and, and there, were no, um, there were no templates in the world around you, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't, you know, desirable gay lives in fiction or on screen or, or, and if you can't see it, you can't be it. Yeah. Um, and I just didn't, I didn't know why it was. I felt that I didn't belong, but I knew that I wanted to spread my wings. And that was partly also, I think, because my reading, uh, my years of reading the contents of Kirkcaldy Library had, had given me a kind of wider horizon. I didn't just want to, to do what, everybody else did. I mean, the, the received wisdom at Kirkcaldy High School was that if you were really clever, you went to Edinburgh or St Andrews. And if you weren't quite so clever, you went to Dundee or Stirling, and then you came back to Kirkcaldy. Yeah. And I just knew instinctively that wasn't what I needed. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's it. I'm, I want to spread my wings further. Where am I going to go? And I knew nothing about England or English universities or anything. Um, we'd been to England once, uh, to Blackpool for a holiday, uh, which, as you will imagine, did not really uh, set me up for going to Oxford. Um, like but I, well, yeah, so I just I thought, well, well, what can I do here? Um, and again, we come back to the Shally School, um, my, my key influence in my life, really. Um, but... Girls from the Shally School, when they went off uh, from the school into further education, they went to basically one of three places, because this was an international school, so they either went to the Sorbonne in Paris, and, and I knew that my French wasn't good enough for that, or they went to Oxford, or they went to the Kensington School of Needlework. <laughs> so I knew that was a no-no. Because <laughs> <laughs> trust me, I can barely sew on a button. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll go to Oxford, why not? Um, and uh, everybody at, at the school, apart from my English teacher, thought that this was uh, a terrible idea. Um, right. the, the, the rector said to me, there's no point in you applying, you won't get in and that will reflect badly on us. Uh, but I had one teacher, um, my English teacher, Wolf Alsop, who believed that uh, absolutely I could do this. And he gave up lots of his free periods to coach me uh, for the entrance exam in, in things that, 
uh, would come up in the English A-level syllabus that we didn't cover. So like Chaucer and, and, and Milton and uh, some Shakespeare. And so um, when, I, when I went off for my, for my Oxford, did my Oxford entrance, I, I, I was, you know, gallus, I suppose. Uh, it didn't occur to me that I didn't have the right to be there. Was there any um, doubt in your mind? Were, were you nervous at all? Or were you thinking, when you, when you get there, you know, and it's, it's very grandeur and it's... I can imagine for many it would be intimidating. It was very, it was very intimidating. I mean, when I went, went for my interview, it was this sort of dead of winter, you know, it's December. Um, and I'd, I'd gone down, I'd gone down to, I stayed overnight in London with, with the parents of a friend of mine. Uh, and I arrived in London. I mean, honest to God, I was the, you know, the, 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 the country hick in the big city sort of standing there. It was Christmas, the lights in Regent Street, I'd never seen anything like it. So I was standing there with a cardboard suitcase looking at these lights going, oh my God, this is amazing. And then the next day I got the train up to Oxford and it was all, it was like, it was, it was really foggy because it's, it's quite low lying Oxford and quite damp and it gets a lot of mists and, 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 and damp in the winter. And, you know, it was, it was that thing where you, you're in the taxi going up from the station and there's these, I mean, amazing buildings, this medieval honey coloured stone, but you can hardly see any of it through the fog. And I was just thinking, what have I come to? It's just it's really spooky and strange. Um, and, and um, yeah, it was, it was very, uh, Right from the get-go, it was, it was completely, it was completely strange. It was a complete culture shock. And when I finally arrived to to start my my degree, it was, uh, it was really. I mean, people just didn't understand me, as I had, you know, the kids played five accent, Ken, and they came what I was saying. Were you saying and, Ken when you were down there? Huh? Were you still saying Ken when you were down there? Aye, still saying Ken when I went when I arrived. You know, I said, like, I'd, I'd get played five, Ken, uh, and and they did the Ken what I was saying, uh, and so I had to learn to speak English. <laughs> well, not all over again. Yeah. So my, my my partner says uh, uh, what what you hear now is my, my Radio Four Scottish accent. Um, but when I go back to the football on a Saturday, she says, "You." She said, first time we went to the football together. She said, "I thought you'd had a stroke when we got out of the car." <laughs> <laughs> the way you were speaking. Is that the same person? Who's wearing yeah. that mask? Yeah. Uh-huh. So yeah, so it was it was a, it was a strange experience. But I mean, I. I it's funny because I always thought that it was it was Oxford that was the exotic place. But um, I remember going to a reunion a few years ago, and and, and one of my cohort saying to me, "And we all thought you were terribly exotic." <laughs> I'm not exotic, I'm Fife. But it, it's funny that because they must all come from a, a similar type of background, you know, and not not to put everyone in Oxford in the same bracket, similar to Kirkcaldy earlier, you know. But it does primarily be an upper class wing, you know. It's a lot of people from wealthy families. Would that be fair to say? I think it was less, I mean, less the case in St Hilda's than in a lot of colleges. Um, St Hilda's has always had a very sort of egalitarian feel to it. And I mean, uh, I had, I had, I mean, amongst my, my sort of group in my first year was was somebody who was the daughter of an earl. But there was also somebody whose father worked on the, on the bins in Manchester. Really? You know, so yeah, there was a, there was a broad range of, of people, mostly from grammar schools, it had to be said, and, and quite a lot from private schools. But um, it wasn't quite the Brideshead revisited thing that people imagine it was. What was it like going back to the reunion? Because it, I, I always find that going back to something many years later can be strange. And I, I suppose you, you touched on a 
thing that I wanted to ask you there as well was your your school teacher that you know really pushed you through. Did did you ever go back and and see him at a later date? Is did you keep in touch? Oh yeah, I mean, Wolf and and his family became became good friends. Uh, good, I mean, they're still friends. I mean, I was, I was actually was texting his his widow just yesterday because she's just got the vaccine. Right. Um, so they're, right, they're, they're kind of part of my extended family, really. Um, Brilliant. Uh, partly because. Um, Wolf and, and his wife Evelyn became members of Kirkcaldy Bowling Club, which was where my parents were stalwarts. Uh-huh. So they knew each other through the bowling club. So really, the, the, it just became sort of, I say, extended sort of family kind of thing. Because when I was going off to Oxford, I mean, you get this vast reading list. And I just looked at these this reading list and thought, I can't afford all these books. And, and Wolf basically said, come round and, and choose, borrow any of my books you need. Um, so I went around with a big cardboard box, <laughs> staggered <laughs> home. It, it's interesting because I, I feel, and Val, you can, you can tell me if I was wrong here, did, did the people from Kirkcaldy support you in your venture? Because I think in Scotland we're often guilty of if someone's doing well and someone's going on to bigger and brighter things and really pushing themselves, we're guilty of having that attitude where it's, who do they think they are? You know? Well, I, I would say that, uh, yeah, it had a kind of mixed response. Um, Certainly, uh, there's a lot of people who were, were really supportive, uh, and and some of them remain friends to this day. But there were, were you right? There were there was uh, people thinking I'd got above myself. Hmm. Um, but well, you know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's and it, not to compare us to America, especially in, in these times at the moment. But I feel that Americans, for example, are very much they push them their their fellow beings to be the best that they can. Whereas in Scotland, it's like away you go. That's that's not quite us. Yeah. Well, I think that there can be some of that, yeah. But I mean, I would I would say, uh, generally speaking, uh, that's not really been my experience in Kirkcaldy. And I mean, I, you know, what, my involvement with Race Rovers, for example, I mean, you would think that that people wouldn't really welcome um, welcome me back with open arms, you know, having uh, sort of left and done the things I've done and established the kind of reputation I have. But totally the opposite. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, you're one of us. Um, and that's that, you know. Uh, somebody, somebody said to me, uh, I was, it was one day I was, I was coming back, I was walking back through the, the, the south stand, which is the home stand, uh, and, and I was sort of going back to the, the main stand, and uh, they, were, they were shouting abuse at uh, the manager of the opposing team. You know that well-known chant, you fat bastard. <laughs> and, and one of them caught my eye and says, we don't mean you, by the way. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> That's no, it's funny. It's funny. Um, are you still so, on the board there, Val? Are you, are you on the board? No, I'm not on the board. I haven't been on the board for some time. Okay. Not on the main, the main board. Um, I think that's something that, that's fantastic about football. And, I, you know, I'm heavily involved with Motherwell Football Club myself. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, for me, I, I love supporting my local team. And I think it's, you know, similar to, to Rafe and Kirkcaldy. It's, it's almost like the main focus of the community. When, when there's not a lot of great things going for that community, this is the thing that gives people hope. Uh, yeah, but what I would say is, is, is you almost touched on it there. It's it's people from all backgrounds, from all over the town that, that come yeah. together, and that there is a unity. And, and there's so much negative press around football and football supporters. But for me, that's what's special about it. Yeah, I mean, the the, the tribe can be a really good thing. Absolutely. Um, and I think with with um, particularly with local clubs, uh, where you don't get people bussing in from the other side of Scotland to come to a match. Um, but that actually it's, it's, it's your team, your town, 
um, you know, and and people people do actually come back to to watch the Rovers from from all over Scotland, but uh, for different sort of reasons. But that's because because it's their team and because they grew up with it, uh, and they've they've inculcated it in their children, and they come and watch it. Uh, but I think um, in in Scotland, you know, once you get out of the very top level of of the, the Premier Division. But you're talking local clubs, you're talking family clubs, you're talking, you know, I mean, you know, families where they're on their third or fourth generation of supporting the club. Um, and that gives, as you say, there's a, there's a sense of solidarity. And certainly when, the t- when, you know, when you're dealing with towns that throughout the central belt of Scotland have been economically, systematically depressed since the 1980s, yeah. it's often... When the clubs, the football clubs, doing well, it puts a smile on people's face. And certainly, you know, in in Kirkcaldy and Wraith Rovers, there's a real sense of, of being part of the community, uh, being involved in in sort of various charitable things. Uh, you know, the food bank is always there. You know, at, at, uh, at match days, support. You know, collecting for the the people in Kirkcaldy who have been forced by economic circumstances to use a food bank. Um, and so there is a sense, really, there of being it is being part of the fabric of the town. Uh, it's a real shame that know, the football clubs are, are this vehicle for change. You know that, that it's left to either the likes of Rafe Rovers or, be it in my case, Motherwell, to actually make a change because the government are failing. Yeah, <laughs> and and it takes it takes Mar- Marcus Rashford, you know, to use his 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 fame and his position. I mean, all credit to him. For you know, I mean, he could just have been another spoilt brat in in the English Premier League, you know, with his fast cars and um, nightclubs. But he actually has chosen to to use his power for good, as it were. And you kind of hope that shames other people into to taking advantage of their position. I'm not saying give all their money away or anything like that. I'm saying, but use your position for good. Use yeah. your position to put pressure on people like the government in in, in Westminster, uh, and indeed sometimes in Scotland we need to do the same thing. Uh, to put that pressure on. I've seen Johnson in Parliament recently, and it might even have been this week when we were recording, and, and he was saying, well in, Marcus Rashford, thank you for holding us to account. And I'm thinking, that's ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. As you said, absolutely credit to himself, to his family, to his community and to the country. But to openly admit that a football player is holding you to account and you've got an opposition party sitting across the benches there. And, and also... Yeah. If you're acknowledging that he's holding you to account, why are you making these decisions in the first place? Yeah, yeah. I mean, today Boris Johnson been saying, "Oh, these these food parcels are absolutely shocking and disgraceful." It's your government that organised this. You know, gave the contract to your pals um, yeah. who've spent five quid on the food that's in the boxes out of the thirty quid they've been paid for it. Don't even start me on that nonsense. Um, you know, it's, it's it's so much of this government in in Westminster has been about cronyism. You know, reward your pals, give them the contracts, whether or not they can actually do anything that you give them the contracts for, just get the money. You know, this government and its its members are not uh, are not the ones who are losing out in this in this pandemic and in this Brexit. You get the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg who moved all these companies' monies into Ireland. We could sit here all afternoon listing the appalling things they've done uh, since they they were elected, and it's it's just a disgrace. You know they're lucky they've had the fiasco of Trump in America to take attention away from them. Well, I've had many you know artists, be that musicians or 
for fellow writers like yourself on the podcast, and I've often said to them, you know, and a lot of the time they tend to be left-leaning, pro-independent supporters, or you know, and I've said, has it ever crossed your mind not to speak out about your politics because it may affect, you know, in, in your respect, people who read your books, or it may affect how many people in, in other guests' respect, how many people download or listen to your tunes or your or your music, and I, I don't know, was that ever in your mind when you were? becoming an aspiring writer or when you were becoming a bit more established to think, uh, am I isolating people here? Uh, no, I mean, I think there's uh, there's no point in, in being a creative artist of any type if you're going to be dishonest. Really agree, if, you're yeah. not, if you're not going to be who you are. Um, you know, I mean, way back in the 1980s when I wrote the, my first novel, the Lindsay Gordon novels, and she's the first British lesbian detective. Uh, people would say, did you, did you not think about doing something different? Did you not think about uh, not making her a lesbian? I said, well, that was just that was the way she came out. I didn't sit there and think, I'm going to make a point here. But I wanted to write uh, something that, that, that I cared about, that I, was, that, that I understood and that I wanted to communicate. So for me, there was no point in, in hiding who I am. And in the same way, if somebody asks me a question, I'll answer it. And sometimes I'll answer it saying, like, I don't know, I have no opinion on that, I haven't thought about that. But if it is something I have an opinion about, I'll express my opinion. And if some people uh, see that as a reason not to not to buy my books, not to watch my television series, fair enough, they're lost. It's, it says more about them than it, than it does you, very well, much. Yeah, I mean, I, I read books by people whose political views are not mine. You know, I have friends who are crime writers who do not share my views uh, on politics, on independence, and I don't not read the books because of that, and I don't not have a drink with them in the bar because of that. Yeah. You know, I think it's perfectly possible to have differing opinions from people that you spend time with, and it not come down to punishing each other in the bar. You mentioned the first Lindsay Gordon there. You know, your your first book it was published back in in the late eighties, and and you says you know it wasn't a choice to to make uh, the first lesbian detective, but I think Val. Whether that was a conscious decision or not, I think it's very important because, in my opinion, representation is huge. <clears throat> and to, to hear people like yourself, you know, putting uh, lesbians uh, out there for other people, it, it gives people a platform and says, you know, like you says when you're growing up in Kirkcaldy, there was no one there to look up to. You know, this was this was alien to people in, in Kirkcaldy at that time. And and I think that goes back to a lot of things as well, be that, you know, working class voices and in the arts as well or, or on television. It's the more that there's a representation a representation there, I think the more important it is that it paves a way for other people coming through. Yeah, I mean, I, I think partly at the back of my head, although I don't think I articulated it at the time, was the thought that I, you know, I, I didn't want the next gen of five growing up with without any kind of template, any kind of role model, any kind of notion that you could you could be a lesbian or you could be different in any particular way. And still be okay, um, and so that for me, for me, that one of the things about writing Lindsay Gordon was just to say you can be okay because the, the Lindsay Gordon novels are not about being a lesbian. A crime novel whose objective happens to be gay, and they're not um, political proselytizing, and they're not uh, here's the novel about coming out. They're they're just somebody having an ordinary life apart from the fact that when she has a romantic relationship with someone that's another woman and not a guy. And that was, was what I wanted to write. I wanted to write about the ordinary lives um, that gay people have. 
because you know I don't I don't go to the supermarket in a particularly lesbian way. You know, I, I don't I don't do my washing in a particularly gay way. You know, my life, the vast majority of my life is just like anybody else's. Absolutely. So you know, in that in that sense, um, you know, there's nothing strange going on. Yeah, but I yeah. think it's very important that you, that you have gave people that voice, you know, and, and you are a role model now, whether you would like to admit that or not, you know, that, that there's people oh. out there that see you as, I can aspire to be like Val. Well, in some respects, I would hope. <laughs> <laughs> not everything, perhaps. But, um, uh, yeah, you, you, you do need, we'd, we all need people that... Uh, that our lives having some some congruence with, I suppose, and it's like you know I often sort of talk to people. People ask me about how Scottish crime fiction took so long to develop and 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 how it did come through in the end. And with with most of these things, what you need is you need one person to kind of kick the door open a wee bit, and then you know some more people come behind you and push the door a bit further open, and then you get swamped by a tsunami, and that's great. You know, there's nothing nothing more exciting than that. To see people finding a voice, and that's what we're seeing, I think, with with this whole Black Lives Matter stuff now. You know, publishing industries had a huge wake up call, uh, and suddenly they're taking seriously the aspirations of writers of colour in this country. And I'm I'm absolutely delighted to see that. And side by side with that, at the same time as we've we've got uh, a development of, of BAME writing in this country, we're also seeing a surge of working class writing. There's a sort of real movement now. Um, to, to to listen to working class voices, and that's one of the, the, the reasons why it's so brilliant that uh, Shuggy Bain won the Booker Prize. Brilliant. You know that that's just hugely important um, because it, it, it again it it gives us that that mirror that window into other worlds that are not our worlds. And you know, reading that's that's one of the great joys of reading is that it takes you into other people's lives. It gives you an understanding. Of, of what their experience is like. And that, that goes both ways. It goes from, you know, sort of like the upper classes getting an understanding of what other people's lives are like at the bottom. But it also gives you uh, an understanding, if you're working class, of how those other people live. Uh, and it kind of gives you an armory as well to go into battle against those, those, those things that you don't approve of, that you don't like. And I've said this before, and I'll doubtless say it again, because if I'll do nothing else if not repeat myself, <laughs> is that um, I think it's what's really interesting is that uh, I think the, the countries that have, have done best in the pandemic in many respects are the countries that are led by women who read fiction. Uh, <laughs> and I think it's partly the, the gender, but I think it's more importantly the reading of fiction, because fiction gives you empathy. Fiction forces you to look at the world through somebody else's perspective. And I think if you're governing a country, you need to understand the lives of your citizens. And so I'd much rather be governed by, you know, a leader like Nicola Sturgeon, who says yesterday, uh, closing down all but essential retailers, which include bookshops. <laughs> you know, um, that to me, I think, is, is a great uh, uh, statement of the importance of reading and the importance of understanding other lives, that we don't just live in our wee silos. And it's, it's been uh, instructive to me to see how many people have spoken openly about the importance of, of reading in this pandemic, the importance of, of being able to 
access ebooks and, and audiobooks online from the libraries, the importance of, of uh, being able to get books delivered still to their houses. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's been a lifesaver, I think, for a lot of people because it's, it's given them uh, a sense of a world beyond their window. It really is that that sense of escapism, and I, I actually think Val that that is for me personally been been something that I have really looked forward to during this pandemic. Is do you know what we can't go outside, we can't meet with friends and family, but let's try and get ourselves into a book. You know, let's get head head first in here and step into another world, step into another realm that you're you're not used to. And I, I would have questioned you on the the women women, women leaders uh, statement that you made there if I didn't fully agree with you. I'd, I'd be wondering if it was just because uh, Nicola maybe had one of your books behind her and, and a well, couple of appearances that she's had on the telly. No, but, um, no, I mean, if you look at them, like, you know, the Ice, Iceland's Prime Minister, uh, Katrín Jakobsdóttir, uh, uh, who did her uh, master's degree uh, on the, the crime novels of Arnar Dúlindrítason, uh, Jacinda Ardern talks about reading fiction from childhood onwards. Sana Marin in Finland also reads, talks about it. This is not, uh, it's not by chance, uh, I think. Um, which is not to say that, you know, there are not men out there who read fiction and, and, and have that sort of empathy. But honestly, every time I see politicians and what they've got behind them is a shelf of uh, political biographies and, and economic histories and all that kind of thing. I'm thinking, you're not getting it. You're really not getting it. You don't know what people think. You don't know how people feel. The people that you're governing, you have no understanding of their lives. And so you govern badly. Absolutely. And, and it's an interesting choice of the, the countries that you mentioned there, like uh, Finland and Iceland as well, because this is small, independent nations governed by women who seem to be doing very, very well. And uh, if you listen to any political commentators, they'll tell you that we're, we're too too small. <laughs> you know, we don't know what we're doing. We don't have the resources there. And these countries seem to be blowing that myth out the park. Absolutely. And I think this is, is a myth that we're, 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 we're too small and, and uh, and uh, too scared and all those things. We're not too anything. We should be too gallus, if anything. Uh, that's that's where they're... Take an example of going to Oxford. We, we should yes. look the, the debate chamber or the yeah. negotiations like that. Yeah. So I think we should have that as our slogan, you know, sort of be gallus, be Absolutely. confident. Self-belief is so, it's, it's so important. It's, it's important at a, a national level as well as an individual level. Um, and and I, I hate to see people's confidence being eroded in, in you know, so many different sorts of ways uh, because you know, maintaining your self-confidence is such an important thing. It's really interesting that, that you mentioned you know, self, self-belief is so important, not only on a, a national level but a personal level because I do feel, and I, and I hate to say this, that sometimes as Scots we do lack self-belief you know, and, and we've gave so much to the world <laughs> in terms of... God, we could sit here all day and name the things that Scotland have given to the world, you know, but I think as a nation of people, we really do lack self-belief and we don't realise that the, the contribution that we have given. Yeah, I think there's, there's a, lot of, a lot in that. And I, mean, but I, I edited a, a book last year with my partner called Imagine a Country uh, and it's a book of, of short essays. Uh, we, we, we sent out the call to uh, basically everybody we could think of and a lot of people came back to us. Uh, and we asked them to imagine the country Imagine one thing about a country you would like to live in. Uh, and we got an astonishing array of responses and um, so almost almost 99 contributors uh, in the end uh, with all sorts of things, some, some really big, important issues, but some quite small issues that when you look at them, 
you realise what a big difference they make. And one of the ones that really struck me was was um, was Damien Barr actually talking about Scottish history and saying how he had learned absolutely no Scottish history at school, that the history that, that, that he'd had at the school had been about Great Britain, uh, and which meant England mostly, yeah. um, and that he just was ignorant about the history of his country. And that had been something that, that he'd taken upon himself as an adult to find out more about. Uh, and maybe that's something where we should be, you know, starting to instill confidence in ourselves by making sure that our kids understand the country that they've they've been born into or the country that they're living in uh, and have a sense not just of the present but of, of the historical past. Uh, you know, it's that, that old thing about, you know, if you don't understand your history, you're condemned to repeat it. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's important that we, we learn where we've come from so that we can figure out where we're going to. I think Damien will, will have had a, a similar schooling to myself. He's, he's just from up the road and without going off on a tangent, he's, he's got a great show at the moment on BBC Scotland, you know, yes. Big Book Club, which I, I think is brilliant. And he also featured uh, a writer that I had on the podcast previously, Graham Armstrong, who's a, another working class voice that published The Young Team last year yeah. and, and has had great reviews from that. But, you know, I think that's so true what he said. And, and it was really, really a a bugbear of mine at school. You know, in history, we learned about the Titanic and they put on the movie. You know, and, and you're thinking, we, we, we learned about Braveheart and they showed Mel Gibson. It's, oh, it's obscene. Yeah. You know, when you think about the, the rich and vast history that Scotland have, why, why is that what they're teaching you in school? I just can't, yeah. put, I can't put it into words. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I was astonished some years ago now, I mean, probably about 15 years ago now, uh, I, I picked up a book in, in, in America. I was on a book tour in America and I picked up a book in a bookshop called How the Scots Invented the Modern World. <laughs> and this was a book about um, you know the history of, of, of Scotland in, in terms of its ideas and its development, uh, scientific ideas, philosophical ideas. And I had to go to America to find this book. Yep. You know, and if you look at the way the Americans fawn over Scottish and Irish history and you think, they're more proud of our history than we are in certain certain parts, you know. It's yeah, but there you go. Um, I, I I do think that that we should give people a sense of pride in in themselves, um, you know. And and I think that uh, too often people have that that self confidence stripped away from them. Uh, there's too many uh, ways in which it's it's easy to to take people's pride in themselves away. And I think too often that happens in our society, and we see the consequences. You know, um, I think it's very easy as well, Val, for for us to, you know, hark on about the the negatives. But I think you know, looking forward, that there, there's got to be some positives for for Scotland and coming out of this pandemic. I mean, it's been a terrible situation for many, and we touched on it earlier that people are struggling, and probably a, an outlet for many has been reading. But I think coming out of this, there's there's lots of lessons that we we should have learned in in. I hope in a way that it makes people look at the world differently going forward. I hope so. I mean, I certainly, when the first lockdown started, it seemed to me that uh, people were being kinder to each other and being more supportive of each other. But as it's gone on, it, a lot of that seems to have kind of worn away and people are not being as considerate of each other as they were to begin with. In fact, in some respects, are being completely inconsiderate of each other, yeah. you know. One more house on this street decides they've got the builders, and I may go have to go out with and, and commit an act of violence. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but it's uh, it's it's easy for us to retreat into our silos and to to go back into those of us who are okay to say I'm okay, and so you know I'm just going to pull up the shutters and, and let the rest of you get on with it. But we have we have to remember that we're part of a community, that we're part of a wider community. Um, and continually deny Margaret Thatcher's claim there's no such thing as society. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and I think, unfortunately, that, that when she made that claim, it, it seems to have stuck in many cases. And I, I think you often see that people are very much individualistic and, and they're out for themselves. But as you mentioned at the start of the pandemic, and it's just small gestures, but, you know, we had people round about here going out and doing shopping for the elderly and making sure that they had things in. Even though it may seem tokenistic now, you know, the, the Thursday night clap for the carers, these things actually brought people together. And, and it was the first time in a long time that, that I had seen that. Not to go back to football, but I think the only time that I had seen community spirit before that was maybe when Motherwell reached a cup final and, and everyone was out together. <laughs> you know, but yeah. it, really is, it really is lacking. And, and I think that throughout this pandemic, hopefully at the end of it, you know, when, when we see a, a, sh- a brighter light, that you know, there is a bigger sense of community and we can actually think, what can we do together for the greater good? Yeah, and and uh, you know, Wraith Rovers. We didn't get our top cup final last because of the because of the pandemic. You know, the the, the Tunnock's caramel wafer cup. Um, but I'm told that we, we, we may yet play the the cup final, and that'll certainly put a smile on people's face. That What have you got in the pipeline, Val? I know that you you brought a, a book out earlier this year. Uh, sorry, last year. Still life as well, and uh, yeah, been planned for 2021 in the pipeline. Well, still life will be coming out in paperback in February. Um, and uh, I've got a, my first uh, foray into a graphic novel is oh. coming out in May. I actually just got the, the proof of the American edition just yesterday. Um, oh. And it's actually, uh, it's, 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 it's quite strange because it's not a crime book at all. I mean, I wrote a, a series of radio plays uh, three years ago called Resistance, or four years ago, 2017. Um, and this was part of a project uh, which is organised uh, Medical Museum in London and an amazing resource library there. And uh, every year they have a project where they bring together uh, writers, radio dramatists, um, and, and radio producers and scientists. And they choose a particular theme each year and you spend a couple of days with the scientists and then you pitch an idea to Radio 4 okay. for a drama or whatever. Uh, and the year I was asked to do this, the subject was antimicrobial resistance. Okay. Basically, there's a plague coming and we're going to all get killed. <laughs> um, and we had uh, Sally Davis, who was then the, the chief medical officer for England and Wales, talking to us. And it was absolutely terrifying, the fact that antibiotics uh, are now effectively, probably useless against the next plague that comes. Yeah. Um, and of course, that was okay. antibiotics for a bacterial plague rather than a viral plague like we're, we're enduring at the moment so I went away and I thought about this and I thought the only thing I can can pitch is an apocalypse so <laughs> I came up with this this idea of a, of a super bug as it were basically that uh, that decimates more than decimates the population of the world and I did my radio dramas uh, and following on from that uh, welcome wanted me to turn it into a novel and I didn't want to turn it into a novel because I get a bit like that sort of I've written it once I don't want to write it again uh, and then we came up with the idea of doing it as a graphic novel. And I started working with an American uh, artist called Catherine Briggs, who was, was based in Dundee at the time. 
and she's since had to go back to the States because of, you know, visa issues and all that. But we worked together on this and uh, it was all done and dusted early summer last year and we thought, it's not the best time to be doing this book. And, and I, I felt as if it would be seen as being exploitative of where we were at that particular point. So we, we kind of held it back. Uh, and now that we have the, the prospect of uh, the vaccine and the prospect of something like life returning to normal, um, we're, we're going ahead with it in, in May, I think. And I, I think it, it looks fantastic. Um, it's just, it just looks really, I mean, just really exciting. And, and it's been a great project to be part of. Um, and it, it looks great. I mean, she's, she's a really interesting artist. And there's lots of, lots of different styles in, fantastic. in the book. Uh, and, and I think, I hope people will find it interesting. Uh, How was it with that? Because that's obviously new to yourself. And, you know, you're, you've done so many novels in itself. But a graphic novel, was it... Are you almost sceptical that the, the graphics or the, the visuals don't match up with the story? Or were you very much go do your own thing and I'll give you the, the wording for it? Well, it was essentially, I mean, because it, was a, because it had been a radio drama originally, all there was was dialogue. Okay. So um, the, the sort of physical images were entirely up to up to Catherine, and you know we, we went through various early drafts of, of her uh, drafting out the drawings of the characters and things before we we, we settled on what we ended up with. Uh, so every, everybody I think was happy with, with what we ended up with, um, and and hopefully people will read it and find it uh, instructive and and and, and all, um, I suppose positive in, in lots of ways that even out of of what went on in, in, in this this pandemic um, and, and the pandemic in the book that people found hope at the end um, that there was a way forward um, so that's that's uh, on the stocks and also um, I've got this year's crime novel of course to, to write um, and uh, I found myself in great difficulties uh, when I came to when I finished Still Life and Still Life uh, actually ends on the eve of the first lockdown um, and it's, it was weird because when I was writing the book, the pandemic didn't exist. There was no, not even a shadow uh, of it. But as I was writing, it, it of course, developed. Um, and the book, had, in my plan, the book had always been set in February 2020. Uh, um, so I'll take that. And I got to the end of it, I thought, well, what am I going to write next? And I find I was really struggling because all of my books, one way or another, are set very much in the here and now. They're set in, in, in the real world. You can, you can uh, identify them in terms of place and time. And, and I felt really um, kind of, there was no solid ground to stand on because everything changes at the moment on, on day to day, almost week by week. It's a different world, a different picture. Uh, and I thought, I, I, don't know, I don't know how to write in the here and now, when the here and now is just a shifting sand, that there's nowhere, there's no place for me to stand. Um, and so I've been vaguely toying with uh, an idea for, for a while about writing a series of novels, uh, actually a quintet of novels set at 10 year intervals, um, 79, 89, 99, 2000, 2019, um, and with the same protagonist, uh, but not necessarily doing the same job throughout the series. And so I thought, well, I'll just get started on that because at least I know what happened in 1979. <laughs> so, so that's what I'm writing at the moment. I'm writing, I'm writing 1979. That's exciting. That's fantastic. It is exciting. And it's, 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 it's fascinating to see how many parallels there are in so many uh, aspects mm. uh, of what's going on now. Uh, 
socially, politically, culturally. So it's 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 yeah, I'm enjoying it. And and Val as as well as being a an award winning offer, you must be missing gigs as well because you're a bit of a rock star these days. Yeah. Really miss the band. Um, you know, we started the fun loving crime writers. It really is a bit of bit of fun. Um and uh, it suddenly it took off and we should have done, I think, something like 13 gigs last year. Uh, and of course, almost all of them had to be cancelled. The last gig we did was Paisley back in February. Um, and yeah, we miss it. Uh, it. It surprised me how much pleasure it is to, to sit down and make music again with, with the guys who are, you know, they're, they're all really good at what they do and we have a great time. Um, we avoid the usual reason that bands break up. Bands usually seem to break up because of musical differences. And because we only do cover versions, it's <laughs> not a situation of somebody coming in and saying, this is my great new song, and everybody else going, well, that's shite. <laughs> so um, we've avoided those those kind of, of differences of opinion, if you like. And we've become really close friends as well as, as being bandmates. I mean, but for us, I mean, you know, the, the high point was was playing Glastonbury in 2019. I mean, a bunch of, bunch of middle-aged crime writers getting up on stage, on the acoustic stage at Glastonbury and, and playing to like, you know, thousands of people. It was just bizarre. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it's, it's I, I love I love singing. I love singing with the guys. I had Christopher on and, and he was saying on the podcast before and thanks to Chris for, for putting me in touch with yourself and he was saying, you know, before this I, I wasn't really a guitarist and now I'm, I'm playing shows at Glastonbury and, you know, all over all over the country. It's like a tour. I wasn't a guitarist at all. Chris Chris sneaked into the band by the back door. Um, it was originally he was he was invited to be a guest vocalist on on the first gig that we did at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and he came came he turned up at rehearsal and we, and we rehearsed where was of London. And he came on. It was great and lovely. And then we we met a few weeks later for, a, for another rehearsal before our next big gig, and he turned up having learned the harmonies for all the songs. And having bought a guitar, <laughs> and now he's been—he's—he's he's now uh, he actually progressed. I mean, he's totally committed himself to this. He's been practicing every single day, and reached the point now where he ended—he's now played lead guitar on one number. That's amazing. So it's just like total commitment. I mean, that's Chris. You know, when he goes for something, he just goes for it. So you know, he's now absolutely at the heart of the band. Couldn't he do without him? As much as it's—it's—it's it's, it's great to see. You know, the, the progress that he's have made and the gigs that you have played. I think it. It also pushes a bigger picture as well that, you know, as much as you're all crime writers in, in your own right, it, there's not a competitive edge there to a certain degree. You know, you're all very supportive and it seems like there's a, a great network. Yeah, I think the crime writing community by and large is, is a very supportive and very friendly bunch. Um, and I think I think it's mostly because crime writers become crime writers because they love reading crime fiction. So yeah. you're always bumping into people whose books you've read and enjoyed. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of respect for what we do. Uh, and there's not a sense of, if I say to you, you should be reading Doug Johnson, that you're suddenly going to go, oh, I'm not going to read Val anymore, I'll just read Doug. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of books out there and plenty of time to read people. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's, not a, there's not a sense of competitive. We've kind of worked together. And we're kind of feeling that, you know, the band has been a, a way to bring really a very different writers together um, but still show that we can we can be supportive of each other and enjoy each other's work as well as enjoying each other's company on stage. Um, and the other thing I've been doing uh, during the lockdown, which also sort of started off as a bit of a draft thing, is I've been doing cookery videos. Brilliant. Have you been doing them on the books? 
Ah, it's on YouTube. Oh, I need to watch Cooking it. Them. Yeah, recipes from the fiction kitchen. Oh, it's a bit of nonsense, really. Um, started off. Um, what, what, what's your your go-to well, well, I mean, the one that uh, people seem to be most excited about was Karen Piri's lentil stovies. <laughs> if ever there was a Pfeiffer in there, that's it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's um, it, it started started off because people are often sort of talking about the the food in the books because a, a lot of times people are not particularly familiar with the kind of Scottish specialities, particularly, and uh, so they asked me about them, and so we thought it'd be quite fun, to, a different thing to do from just sitting about doing Zoom events. That's uh, that uh, would 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 do these uh, recipes, so they're, they're loosely tied into the books or to my wider community, uh, and my partner has become a very skilled videographer uh, over the, the the pandemic, and so yeah, we we, we did we did eight uh, series of eight, one one a week for eight weeks to begin with, because we just did one for a bit of fun. And everybody said give us more. And then we did a, a Halloween special and we did a Christmas special and a Hogmanay special. So who knows when the next special will be. I'm going to have to go back and check these out, Val. I apologise oh, for seeing them, but it, it sounds very exciting. It'll change your life. <laughs> I'm going to be kicking up a storm, I'll tell you. Mm. Honestly, though, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure, Val, and, and thank you so, so much for your time. Really appreciate it and all the best for the year You're going welcome. ahead. You're welcome and thanks for, thanks for the chat. And uh, nice thank, to thanks to everyone who has uh, watched or li- listened to this episode of the DW Podcast. Uh, if you've not, please like and subscribe uh, and please check out some previous episodes. Mm-hmm.